Welcome to episode 58 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, I talked with Ruthie about her experience in the Army. Ruthie opened up and shared personal stories of being raped while serving in the military not once, but twice. I was moved by her story, and if you listen to the episode, you'll hear me cry because the story of what she went through and how she helped someone who was in a similar situation is so powerful and shows that even when something horrible happens to you, you can have a positive impact and make changes. I'm really thankful to Ruthie for opening up and sharing about her experience of being raped in the military. I know it's not easy for her to talk about this, but I also know how important it is. And I love how she ended the episode by talking about how now you know one person and you know one person's story. And I think that Her being brave is so important for us as a society to hear the stories of women, to know what they're going through, and to know that it's not just a statistic, but these are real people. So I'm really excited this week to share Ruthie's story, and I hope that you learn from it and are moved the way I was. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Ruthie served in the U.S. Army for eight and a half years. She was stationed in California, Kentucky, Georgia, and Texas. She also did a 12-month tour to Afghanistan. She separated from the Army as a staff sergeant in 2015, and after staying home for several months, she went back to work as a federal contractor in Maryland. When she became pregnant with her fourth child, she decided to start freelance writing on the side. Closer to her delivery date, she decided she wanted to quit her job and grow her business full-time. Now she runs a boutique content market agency called Defy the Status Quo. Welcome to the show today. I'm excited to hear your story. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. Why did you decide to join the military? I was actually planning on going to college right after high school. But for the last few years of high school, I knew that I wanted to learn languages and travel the world and just, you know, experience other things. And I felt like language was the gateway to that experience. So I was all set to go to college and my school was allowing people to just, you know, take the ASVAB. So it wasn't necessarily sponsored to any particular particular service, but we were allowed to take the ASVAB. So I was like, well, I already took my SEs, so I'll just go ahead and take the ASVAB. I've heard it's similar. And so I took it and I scored really well, which caused all of the military people to come visit me. At my house, like all of them, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, Army, everybody came. And at the time, I was particularly vain about my hair. So I completely nixed the Marines and the Navy on that alone since they chop your hair off at basic training. So I was like, nope, not doing that because my hair was down to my waist at the time. And the Air Force, I had an older brother in the Air Force already. So I was like, oh, I don't want to do what he's doing because uh, he's like, I think he's six years older than me, five or six years older than me. And we were really competitive. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so even though I wasn't seriously entertaining the idea, the person I consistently talked to was the army recruiter. 
And one of the things he mentioned was, hey, so you're going to school for language and like cultural studies. He was like, well, we could send you to California and pay you to learn a language. And at the time, so I, when I was 13 or 14, we had moved from California to Pennsylvania. So I was like, oh, back to California. That's amazing. And I'll get a paycheck while I'm in school. And, you know, they're like, yeah, it'll be about a year or a little bit more. And it's just language and the culture studies, not any of the extra college classes. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. You know, and they like left out all the hard stuff, of course. And so that is kind of like how it got started. Like I just kind of set those little seeds in my mind. And actually they tried to get me to change my mind because of my because of my ASVAB scores, they kept pitching helicopter mechanic to me. And I was like, that's not even close to what I want. But, you know, it was this was uh, 2006, 2007. So, you know, they were at that point in, you know, the various wars that, you know, helicopter mechanic would have been great. And so they were just kind of trying to get me to make different choices. But that's kind of what, you know, kind of guided me that way. I have both my grandfathers served in the Navy and the older brother in the Air Force. It just seemed like a really good opportunity. And it was different. It was different than anything anyone I knew was really doing. And I, I've i always liked to stand out and do something different. So it was your ASVAB score that brought the recruiters to your house. And to do language, do you have to score a certain level or is there another test that you have to take to be able to do that? So I think that you do have to score a certain level on the ASVAB and I can't remember exactly what that was, but there is a subsequent test that they make you take called the D-Lab. My recruiter, my recruitment office actually forgot to make me take it. So the day that I was scheduled to leave or like at least do the majority of my processing, I also had to devote a few hours to taking this language test. It's called the Defense Language Aptitude Battery. So we call it the D-Lab. And so based on how you score on that test will dictate which language category you're assigned. And there are four. And then within those language categories, you get assigned, at least for the Army, you get assigned needs of the Army is how they, they choose that. Uh, yeah, I took the D-Lab when I was in ROTC. I don't really know why I took it, but, and it was like, it's kind of a weird test where they have like a made up language where you have mm-hmm. to like recognize different things. And then, and I was like, that was, that's kind it's kind of a weird test. So it's kind of interesting you had to do it while you were like in processing and like getting all your medical and getting ready to go. When the test for me was so weird that usually I have a pretty good gauge mentally of how I felt taking a particular test. And when I was done with that, I was like, like, I don't even, I don't know how that went at all. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I failed. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Yeah, I think I felt the same way because I was like, that was really weird. So what job did you end up doing in the Army? So I became a 35 papa, which was a cryptologic language analyst. So I translated and the language that the Army picked for me was Persian Farsi, which they speak in Iran. And then they speak Dari, which is a dialect in Afghanistan and Tajik, which is a dialect in Tajikistan. And I only offer that explanation because when I I saw the letters PF as my language code on my orders. I had no idea what that was. And then someone said, oh, you got Persian Farsi. And I was like, Persian? I was like, isn't that a dead language? And so, of course, like, I mean, I was 18, but I was showing my ignorance a little bit because I thought everybody over there spoke Arabic and I was incredibly wrong, as my education would soon tell me. Yeah, because I was in northern Afghanistan and they spoke mainly Dari Mm -hmm. and then a little bit Pashtun. And one of the guys in my I had a 10 day language class and he 
was doing incredibly well because he knew Arcee and so he knew how to like write it and he yeah. like caught on really quick because it was similar, different, but similar. So I actually went through a four month course for Pashto before my deployment and I... I mean, I had a, like, if you were comparing me to the other students, I had an unfair advantage, but I smoked Pashto because, because they have their culture so blended over there. Uh, if, if I'm speaking to a person who understands Pashto, I can just replace whatever like nouns I don't know. I can just replace them with Farsi nouns. And because they all, they, almost everybody also understands Dari. So it sounded like my Pashto was just incredible and it really wasn't i just kept plugging the holes with farsi and the teachers understood me that's all that happened that's funny so yeah you definitely had an advantage of knowing that but it took a lot of work so how long were you in school so you went to basic training and then did you go to california like they promised to go to the language institute i did i did i went pretty much right after and i was there for it was about a year because you have some in-processing time right before you immediately immediately start class. So depending on the language and like the number of people going through, you may have to wait. You might only have to wait a couple of weeks if there's a lot of people who have to go through for those classes because they start them more frequently. But if your language is more low demand and the military assigned it to you anyway, then you may have to wait longer. And I mean, you're in Monterey, California, so it's not like the worst place to wait. Right. But after that, I had another six months of technical training in Texas, which was not as nice because it felt like we were kind of going back to the real army since California didn't really count. And then after that, I actually had a couple of months in Arizona for some add-on training before I finally got to my duty stations. So I was actually in training for like two years and I had signed on for five. That was my initial enlistment, but I spent two of them in training before I showed up in Kentucky at my first duty station. Wow, that's a lot of time. I mean, it makes sense because you're learning a language, but that's a lot of time for the military to devote for someone. And then like your contract was only five years. So it's like two years with training and then three years. Yeah. I mean, I knew one person who got like a four year enlistment and that was just pretty much unheard of. Basically, like the standard minimum was at least five. And then I knew a lot of Air Force people who had signed up who had six year contracts. I mean, it was was a lot of time, a lot of money. For sure. Because when you were at the defense language, it's all the branches go there to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you. civilians there too. And then like Coast Guard or maybe even some of the like FBI or DIA or... Not all of them identify themselves that way, but we know. <laughs> and so sometimes you see, like, just it's all sorts of, of people. And then also the reserve services send their people there, too. So if you enlist as part of the National Guard or the Air Force Reserves or something like that, and that's your job, then they will they'll activate you and they'll still send you and you'll be there the whole time. So if that's if you're in the reserves or one of the reserve services and that's something you want to do, it can be a bit more of a initial commitment than what most people would expect, because you still have to go and train in the language at the school for that whole time. Yes, that's true. And I think sometimes people think one week in a month, but they don't think like, oh, you actually like any job you do, you have to go to basic and then you have to go to tech school. And that's that's at least 10 weeks. Is that what basic is for army? I'm working yeah. on that. I should remember. But <laughs> and then you have like either a couple months or a year of training. So yeah. So when did you go to Afghanistan? I went to Afghanistan in 2010. So it was right 
I mean, so it was about six months after I got to my first duty station. And that was even interesting because I was deploying with a unit I didn't really know because I got to Kentucky in July. And then in September, they sent me to D.C. for that four month Pashto course. And then we deployed at the very, very beginning of February. So I was deploying with a bunch of people I didn't even really know because I'd spent that four four out of my six months technically with the unit in D.C., living life like a civilian in an apartment in Alexandria. So, I mean, that was nice, but then I had to come back and deploy. So, yeah, so that was in 2010 at the very beginning of February, and it was a 12-month deployment. So we came back at the very beginning of February of 2011. We were in Afghanistan and Almost the exact same time. I got there at the, I got to like Manus at the end of February. I think I got into, I think we were in country by the end of February, but we were right around that end of February, beginning of March. And then I was there until the end of October. Oh, Manus. Oh my goodness. Wasn't that kind of like an processing? Like it almost made me feel like I was going through basic training again in a weird way uh, because they make you do a whole bunch of, you know, getting gear and medical stuff. It felt like in processing. It was strange. It is kind of, yeah. They like have you sit through a bunch of briefings and like we showed up in Manus at like midnight. And so they like rolled out the briefings and like you didn't get to go to bed. And then like we finally got to go eat breakfast and then take a nap. And yeah. Yeah, it was a whole different life over there. But I loved Manus because it was like I liked all the MWR stuff and that you could go and eat anytime you wanted. And yeah, stuff. like oh, were you at a FOB? I was. I was at a FOB. So Manus was like luxurious compared to compared to some of the FOBs we had out there. And and the FOB I was at, so I was in RC East. So not, it was, you know, so we were north then of Kandahar. So not RC South, but we were in RC East. And I was at FOB Salerno, which is in Host Province, um, which is right along the border with uh, Pakistan and is incredibly mountainous region. And even, and it turned out that the, the Pashto training I got wasn't nearly as useful as they had hoped because the dialect in our provinces was incredibly strange, which isn't unusual at all because most of the most of the population, at least at the time that I was there, they couldn't read. So there was no way to kind of standardize the language. And then with it being so mountainous and everything, the types of internet and, you know, radio and TV signals that they received were pretty, you know, minimal. But yeah, so that's where we were. It, was, uh, it wasn't as active in terms of like fighting as Kandahar, but it was more active than Western or Northern Afghanistan. So I'd say we saw, a, a, I mean, not nobody gets a fair share, but we saw a decent amount. And were you going out into into Coast Province or were you mainly on the FOB? I was mainly on the FOB just because I worked primarily at the top where the intelligence analysts typically work. Um, and then I was on nights the whole time. Oh. I, worked, I worked 12 hour shifts, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. So pretty much the whole time, like by six months into the deployment, my skin was starting to look yellow and I couldn't go outside without glasses because I it was so hard to see when the sun was out. But my night vision got really good. Yeah, it was kind of funny because we had a we were at a little fob. I was in Capisa, which is pretty close to where you were. And I knew where all the stuff was at night to like not run into it. And like, it was amazing how like good your vision would get because you're just kind of used and especially because you weren't you were just going at nighttime. And so, yeah. So you would so just you were there. So, you know, but I would say that probably one of the things, the most beautiful things was the Milky Way, right? Yeah, the star. Yeah. Yeah. First time in my life I've ever seen it. Yeah. I mean, because there was no light, so you yeah. could see everything. It was just, 
And we were on a blackout bob, so yeah, we were too. So I mean, not like when you go to uh, like Bagram where all the lights are on like all the time, mm-hmm. but yeah. So being on a blackout bob with no lights and um, we could only use the red flashlights or the colored flashlights, but we use the red ones since the wavelength for the lights is lower, so the red light travels doesn't travel as far as some of the other lights. And yeah, I remember the first time I saw that, and it just I I had to stop and I just stared at it. I just it was amazing. Even the like mountains in Afghanistan, I thought it was just the scenery of where Arfa was like in a little valley and there was just mountains everywhere and even Bagram when we got there there was snow on the mountains and it was just I just thought the whole part of the country that I saw was just so beautiful yeah so you were there for a year did you face any challenges while you were deployed I would say that probably one of the biggest things was you know calling home Right. And just realizing that like life was continuing on without you. So I wasn't married or anything. I didn't have any children at that point, but I was very close to my family. And I had at the time I had younger brothers who were like four and six. And so, yeah, so just calling home and just realizing that everything's just kind of going on without you was definitely hard because you kind of exist almost in like this bubble. And and actually, to be honest, you don't even realize how hard it is until you get back. But I mean, during deployment, it was strange because you start to learn how to to survive under these higher levels of pressure and stress. Because what it feels like is that you get there and you get used to it, but that's not actually what's happening. It's that you're learning how to survive with these higher levels of stress. And so for for me, I developed, it's kind of weird. I mean, out of all the things that could have happened for me, I developed a weird reaction to stress, but but I would, something would happen. It would be something small where everybody else would normally like chuckle and I would go into like a fit of hysteria over it. And it was incredibly embarrassing. And actually it doesn't happen so often anymore, but if I'm really stressed out and again, somebody says something and it would normally warrant a chuckle, like I will go into like, like almost screaming, like I'm laughing so hard. There's tears going down my face. And the only way for it to stop is if I leave and everybody stops staring at me. And so that started happening about six months into the deployment and everybody in my office learned to just let me walk out. And then they wouldn't bring it up again when I came back, because if they did, I'd probably have to leave because I was embarrassed and that causes stress spike. Um, so that was like a super weird thing that happened to me that I can tie directly to my deployment. And you said you still, it's not as bad, but it still can happen years. I mean, it was 2010. That's a while ago. So like it was uh, when I was a federal contractor, I remember one time distinctly where we were in an elevator and there's also a freight elevator next to us though. And whenever the freight elevator lands on a floor, it dings a bell to let people know, Hey, the freight elevator's here. Well, we had pulled up and our doors had opened on our elevator when the freight elevator's bell went off. And I don't do well with loud sudden noises anymore and it went off and I shouted really loud in in our elevator at everybody I was like no and then everybody of course turns to look at me and it happened and so I like rushed out of the elevator and I like run into the bathroom and I'm like oh I can't believe that happened you know because that's still it was what it had to have been like 2017 2018 so I mean still wasn't that long ago right it had 2017. And yeah, so it just, it would pop up at the weirdest times. And, and yeah, so that's something else that happens too, is the loud sudden noises, like can't do that anymore either. 
just because while you're out there, of course, I mean, I'm sure you're, you know, you remember, but while you're out there, like loud, sudden noises often did not mean anything good, nothing good at all. And you need to take cover. So it's like, you just get used to taking that action, you know, like you have to do something. And so loud, sudden noises now, I'm like, what do I do? And usually there's nothing to do. It's somebody knocked a book off a shelf and it slammed on the floor or something, you know, benign. But I, I think that, you know, it's just kind of learning how to live that way. And with that stress, it's not nearly as easy to shed that, obviously. Right. I think that's one of the hardest parts of deploying is that when you come home, you have to adjust to living in a not combat zone, but your body, your body and your mind has gone through, the, especially like I was there for nine months, you were there for a year. So it wasn't like a short period of time, like your body had to like physically change so that you could survive the experience and then you can't unlearn what it knows. And so it's, yeah, so I've done a lot of like learning about psychology. So that makes a lot of sense. Besides that, was there anything else that happened during your deployment that has stuck with you to today? Yeah, there, it was like in our last like 30 days or maybe 60 days, our deployment. And we... We had taken down the fence around the talk. They were doing some sort of repair or something like that. And the insurgents cut the wire to come on base. And so, yeah, and they made it. They made it on base. And we knew they told us they were armed and that they were in our uniforms because people didn't follow the rules. And they put the uniforms in the trash and they found them and took them out of the trash. And so because we didn't have a fence around the talk anymore, somebody had to guard the one of the exits, one of the back doors to the talk. And I ended up being one of those people. But they told us they were on base. We were code black. There were helicopters. There were dogs. Like there was everything was was out. And I remember hearing a noise around the corner of the building. And I had just come back from R&R. So our deployment was almost over and they sent me a deployment like nine months into it or something like that. So I just, you know, kind of just sort of come back from home and, but we were getting ready to go back. We were ready to getting to go home and I heard something and I just remember thinking, no, I am, I'm going home. And keep in mind, like I'm outside, I'm wearing my, my Kevlar, I'm wearing my vest, I've got my weapon and the weapon's on red because we have active insurgents out. So, you know, being red, you've got your magazine in and you've got a round in the chamber and the safety is off. Like that, that is the position that I was in. And I was like, I'm, I'm going home. Like I, no way I'm staying here. And they hadn't really given us the details exactly of where they had entered the base either. So like that noise I heard around the corner, it sounded like a person creeping around the corner. And so I remember taking a knee and aiming my weapon at that corner. And I saw the leg come around and it was in our uniform which obviously didn't help me determine anything. And the guy came around the corner and he ended up being a soldier from another room in the talk. So one of the other offices had sent somebody outside without talking to my office and I almost shot him. So he came around the corner and I mean, I'm sure that traumatized him as well because he came around the corner and I had my rifle aimed at him. But the thing that stuck with me then is that I mean, so people talk about it, like, you know, if I was in a self-defense position, like I would do this or I would do that. And, and people kind of cast judgment on when things happen, like, oh, you overreacted and did X or whatever. But without actually having to do it, I had already made up my mind that it was done and that I was going to do it and that I was going to survive. And so that's something that I will, I mean, like now I know that about myself for good or for bad. I know that about myself. Now I've got kids. You know, so who knows 
how much am I, you know, but I jest, but that is something that I knew about myself or I didn't know about myself for like really knew it, you know, like you think, you know, then when it comes down to it, like once you're in that position, then, you know. So how did you not shoot? Did he like say, whoa, 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 or? Well, I took the knee because I figured if I was a smaller target and everything on our base was gray, the buildings were gray, everything was gray. And it didn't sound like he knew I was there necessarily. And I also didn't expect that he would know that I had taken a knee either. So he would have been looking for more of like a, you know, full on person shape. And so that was kind of what helped me hold it basically like he was being quiet but he wasn't he wasn't walking super sneaky so when he came around the corner i had the opportunity to like see his patches and his helmet and but i actually recognized him i recognized his face so that was you know another you know especially thinking that fast like your brain is trying to make all the connections it can and i knew that he worked in that building i didn't even know his name but i knew he worked in our building so i was like oh okay and then i finished my time out there and i went inside and i cursed everybody out i was a sergeant i was an e5 there were officers there were warrant officers didn't care cursed out everybody and walked out they just let me do it because because they get they got it you know they understood <laughs> i just walked out yeah because you were there to guard the door and so and they didn't follow proper protocol to not well your building it was the other building that didn't say but whatever the case that makes sense like yeah and that moment will stay with you forever so you came home and that's when you like finally got to do your job as like a normal army troop because before you had been in training and then prepping to leave for deployment and then you deployed and so you came back what was the transition like from being in afghanistan to being back in the state that wasn't so bad at least not initially so because we all went together and we came back together we were still kind of in the bubble you know like we would we saw that fort campbell and so we would go out into the town and see some you know some stores had shut down some stores had opened so that was a little different but all of us were still in the bubble together it was actually when i went home and that you know they gave us like 30 days before we could even go home because we were you know reintegrating but going home was when it was particularly hard because so much had changed, like with my family and the area they lived in. And, you know, you felt kind of like, you know, your life it was almost like life was paused yeah. in a way. Like it continued for you, but you expected all of your outside experiences to pause and they did not. Mm -hmm. So that was difficult to handle. And I mean, I opted. So there were different routes that people took in terms of processing that. I opted for the I'm going to do whatever I want to show exactly how much you know control I have over this situation. So I bought my first car. I got my entire back, almost entire back tattooed. I got two very large tattoos on my back. And then let's see, I had reenlisted while I was deployed. So I was actually getting ready to go to a new duty station anyway. But I mean, I, I trained for a half marathon. I was just like, I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm in so much control when in reality I was making very reactive decisions. Although I still love my tattoos. I'll just say that. But it was, they were incredibly reactive decisions. The first tattoo I had planned while I was in Afghanistan, but the second one just kind of happened as large as it is. It just kind of happened in three sessions. But reintegrating and I mean, it was probably a little bit easier, well, probably a lot easier as I, as I understand it now from like my mom perspective, the fact that I did not have children at that time, I didn't have a spouse who stayed here without me. I actually met my husband while we were in Afghanistan. And, and so I can only imagine what it would be like having children who grew up a whole year 
without you. So I, I will say that like personally, I had a lot of struggle, but if I had to pick, I would definitely, as much as I know now, I would still rather not do it now because I feel like the year that I missed would be even more noticeable and probably a little devastating. I agree. I feel like when you said that like life's, it does, it feels like life kind of like you're still living and you're going through this experience, but it's so different than the rest of your life. So it's like, a pause and it's really weird when you come back home and you're like oh wait your life kept happening like (laughs) I kind of just left you here and this my husband moved he got assigned to a new base while I was in Afghanistan so I came home to like a box of stuff at my friend's house and like my whole house was now in another state and it was like this is kind of like weird (laughs) because like when I left everything was on the walls it was in our house and now someone's living in our house this was kind of you know weird that yeah but I I can really relate to the pot like how you felt because it is it's just weird yeah so did you face any other struggles in the military I did and I would say that it, it definitely tied to me being a woman in the military just because this is an you know predominantly female experience, but I was raped twice while I was serving in the military. Once while I was at language school in California. And then the second time, which may have contributed to my reactionary behavior following deployment was actually the night that I got back from Afghanistan. And the first, I mean, and and the experiences were incredibly different. They were almost opposite type experiences. The first time I was I was dating the guy and no didn't mean no for him. And I mean, it was during the day. There was no alcohol. There were no impairing substances, anything like that. And I did, you know, it took me several months and I did what I was supposed to do. I ended up reporting it because he was stalking me. And because, uh, you know, I broke up with him. Imagine that. And so he was stalking me and like doing weird things like sending flowers and stuff. So even after I I had reported him, flowers showed up for me at my company area because we were in language. So in uh, training. So thankfully, deliveries got sent to the company area. So my platoon sergeant actually ended up taking those flowers home to his wife because it was Valentine's Day. But I ended up reporting it. And and I feel like this is probably the part of the experience is probably the saddest for me because I felt like I did everything that I was supposed to do. Like this awful thing happened to me and I did everything I was supposed to do and it all still went wrong. But as soon as I reported it, the criminal investigative division CID came and I went to their office and they interviewed me. And of course, we didn't have any like forensic evidence or anything like that. But he asked me if I thought that the guy would accept a phone call from me. So I was in the army and this guy was in the air force. So that made it even worse because it was a joint service issue. But he asked me if I thought that he would accept a phone call and if, if I could get him to admit it, like confess guilt. And I told him I thought so because he, the guy had been incredibly effective at manipulating me emotionally. So I felt like me calling him would have had him thinking, oh yeah, so great that she finally like called, right? So I wasn't, you know, claiming he was stalking me anymore. So I called him and I told him that he had to have, he had to stop having his friends watch me and reporting on my activities, which was happening. And and I asked him and he apologized for it. And I was like, well, that's not the only thing you have to be sorry for. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I was like, and he said he was sorry. And I, I said, so you admit it. Like, that's what you did that day. You raped me. And he said, yes. And I'm, I'm just so sorry. 
And so I got off the phone with him shortly after that. And the officer was like, yep, that'll do it. Like he recorded it and there was a sharp lady right there. So she was like kind of with me through the process. And and, and so they both heard it because it was on speakerphone and he recorded it. So he's like, yep, that's it. So they actually went and got him that night. And so I was like, OK, cool. And then they, you know, the Air Force and the Army told him to not approach me or do anything at all. But there wasn't really anything in place because it was joint service base and it was tiny for them to really like remove him until the investigation was done. So and then a few months later, I was contacted by JAG and I hadn't heard from the sharp woman. She was supposed to set me up for counseling. She was supposed to set me up for testing. She was supposed to do a lot of things. I never heard from her again. So that was like one crack that I fell through. And then JAG wants to meet with me a few days before my DLPT. It's the first time I'm taking an official language proficiency test. And so I'm already stressed out. And I'm like, what do you guys want? And they told me that my case file with my sole, pretty much sole bit of evidence, the recording was in a box by an air conditioning unit that malfunctioned and everything in the box was destroyed. So they were coming to take my statement again. And so I had to tell the entire story, incredibly, you know, very detailed story, had to tell it again to these two people who I'd never talked to before and who weren't involved in the process ahead of time. And I was only uh, an E3, well, no, I was an E2 at that time. And they were like, okay, so we're going to take all this stuff back. And I'm like, so what now? And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll contact you and we'll let you know, like Sharp will contact you. And so I took my DLPT. I actually had to report, I had to report to my unit that the Air Force guy was supposed to be taking his DLPT in the same room as us. I found out from another Air Force person who didn't know the entire story, but knew we had some trouble. And so he told me, he's like, hey, so so-and-so told me that he's taking his Russian DLPT in here in the same room. And so I told my unit and they're like, nope. <laughs> so we had to go to, you know, I didn't even see him that day, which I was grateful for, but I made it. I graduated. I went to Texas and there's the JAG building that handles all of our cases from, you know, San Angelo and a good fellow Air Force Base and in at DLI. There it is. And I walked past it every single day. And I was like, man, they never contacted me. And I started seeing some of his classmates show up. And I was like, am I just going to walk around and there he's going to be like, because nobody said anything. So I one day I worked up the courage to go to the JAG office and I sit down and I sign in. And lo and behold, the office I end up in for the JAG officer was the same female officer who took my statement that second time after my case file was destroyed. And she was incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly uncomfortable because she was like, oh, so Sharp didn't contact you. Like, I mean, we closed the file like they didn't contact you. And I'm like, no. And I was like, can you just tell me what happened? And they said that because it without my without the evidence, it turned into a case of me versus him. And the Air Force was left to give his punishment and they gave him a letter of reprimand in his file. That was his punishment. And looking back, once I became, you know, a sergeant and and had more experience and just looking back as a common sense person, you're just kind of like, couldn't you have gotten like sworn affidavits from the two people who heard it on the phone since it was on speakerphone? Like I get that the recording is destroyed, but you couldn't have done that, you know? So it's just kind of like another crack that I fell through in the system. And that was incredibly disappointing. When I was raped again, after I got back from Afghanistan, Alcohol was involved. It was at nighttime. It was in the barrack. And I remember enough of it, quite a bit of it, unfortunately. But 
looking back, like I, I just, I had had too much. I had been fed some drinks. I had had too much. I forgot to lock my door. And I even remember turning around and looking and seeing this guy following me down the hallway because we were on mixed floors. So the women, the female soldiers only had half of a floor that was technically female. And I just, I remember that and I have flashes. And he also made sure to stop by and wake me up because we had formation. So if I hadn't shown up to formation, then obviously that would have been really suspicious or, you know, of course they would have at least come to get me. But I, I didn't even really pull it all together until about halfway through the morning because I was incredibly hungover. And I didn't report it that time because he was we weren't in the same company, but he was kind of a golden boy over in his company. And like I had even at the time, I felt like I had even less legs to stand on in terms of, you know, like alcohol was involved this time. Like I was like, I don't I don't want to do that. He lives on my floor and his fiance is across the hallway. Like I don't I don't want. So I didn't report it. I kept it to myself. And that was something that I carried around for a really long time. And I moved to Georgia, I PCS to Georgia. And I will say the one good thing that came out of it was that I learned from a lot of people's mistakes. And so it happened to me and it was terrible, but it put me in a position later to really dig in on an issue for one of my soldiers. She was being harassed by a Navy E6 in Georgia. And it turned out later he'd had a pattern of behavior for this. But her friend came to me and said, I was married. So I used to be Sergeant Andrews and then I was Sergeant Bowles. But she said, Sergeant Bowles, I I really like she doesn't know I'm coming to talk to you, but I wanted to talk to you about this. And then maybe I could maybe I could just tell her that you are you want to talk to her. And so she described it for me. And I was like, OK, yeah, we'll meet, you know, in a couple hours, just have her come to me when she comes on shift because she was on nights and I was on days. And that couple hours for me initially, I was like, well, I'm going to just tell her to, you know, learn some self-defense and just keep it to herself because this doesn't go well for us. This doesn't go well for us when we report it. And she's new and she was only an E4. She was an E3, but he was an E6 in the Navy. And he had been here for a while, you know, petty officer, first class. And he had been here for a while. So he had the, you know, and everybody liked him. And I was like, so that's not going to go well for us. But about an hour before I was supposed to meet her, I started thinking about what if it had gone differently for me? Like, what would I have needed for things to go differently for me? And I realized that the one thing I needed was a champion. I needed somebody who knew better than me, but more importantly, I needed somebody who would have fought for me when I felt like I just didn't have the strength to give anymore. And so when we sat down, we were in like a private office and I told her, I was like, I was honest and I told her that I'd had some experiences of my own that initially made me feel like we should just try and keep it under the rug. But I told her, I was like, you know what? I was like, we're going to report this. I was like, if you want to report this, this is what will happen. And I explained how it was supposed to go in theory. I was like, but if any of those things don't happen, right, because they have it in the policy, they lay it out. If any of these things don't happen, I will take it up with our first sergeant. And if our first sergeant and our company commander don't do anything, then I will be at the battalion commander's door. I was like, I will take this all the way up to the INSCOM commander. I will write letters to presidents. I will write to your state senators and Congress people. I will write to my state senators and Congress people. It's like, I will threaten his life in the parking lot if that's what I have to do. I was like, but you will not have to go through this anymore. I was like, he, it's him who's at fault. And I was like, and I have your back 1000%. And I was like, so I was like, do you want to report this? Because at this point, I'd kind of worked myself up a bit already. So I decided that even if she didn't want to report it, I was threatening the crap out of him because I was an E6 too. So he wasn't even going to wave anything over my head. So it was like, if that's how he wanted to roll, that was cool. I could do that. But she wanted to report it. And 
I don't know if it was just like me with my will kind of like enforcing that onto the universe, but everything went exactly the way that it needed to go. He ended up getting removed. He was supposed to come back as a federal contractor once he got out of the Navy. That job was taken away. The unit was like, the base was like, nope, you don't get any more work here. Get out. And it and it turned out he had had a pattern of that behavior, but it, it went exactly the way that it was supposed to. And so for me, it felt like, you know, I, I went through what I went through and those things happened to me. But I was because of that experience, it caused me to react so strongly and it gave her the confidence to do what she needed to be able to do to make her space safe again. And and that would have been, I think, what I had wanted and needed when you know, that first time, especially when everything just went to pieces and it seemed like nobody was on my side. And that definitely colored a lot of my military experience after that, because I mean, I became a fitness competitor. I was able to do more pull-ups than almost any guy in my unit, which was incredibly satisfying. And so, you know, I got all muscly and very strong and very fast. And I had this persona that basically was my Sergeant Bowles persona. Like once I put on my uniform, there was this persona that I kind of wanted people to get the impression I would like kick in their teeth if they upset me. Right. Because I wanted them to think that I was a little little bit off. Like I was I was I mean, I worked very hard to be an excellent NCO, but there was absolutely no room for anyone to question my, you know, ability or strength. But I had this attitude that could be particularly off putting, especially for male soldiers. But that was on purpose because it was kind of like my armor. But even when I was a federal contractor going back, I didn't have my uniform anymore and it felt like I didn't have my armor. And so I struggled a lot with being in elevators or any closed spaces with solitary male service members. There was something about the uniform and being in that closed, enclosed space where nobody else was that was incredibly nerve wracking for me. And if it happened, I would typically get off on the next floor. So like they knew they knew I was supposed to go to the eighth or ninth floor, which is where my office was. But if we got in on the first floor, I was getting off on the second because I could not be in the elevator with them. And so it's just it gets better in its own way. It gets better. And I mean, I don't think we necessarily have control over a lot of I mean, you don't have any control over what somebody else chooses to do. But I learned, particularly dealing with that issue with my soldier, is that I I had the ability to control how I responded to it and what I did with it later. So instead of it being this terrible thing that like festered inside of me, it became a piece of it became a piece of the armor that I put on. And it became almost in its own way, it kind of became a weapon because. When it was time for me to protect my soldier, it was one of the things that I used as an example mentally of what could go wrong. And I was able to just push myself like if I had to, I was going to extremes to make sure that she was okay and that she was safe. And if I hadn't had those experiences before, I might not have reacted so strongly in such a way that it would have made her comfortable to to do, you know, to report. And now I have a daughter of my own and I have three boys and This story will be something I share with them pretty early on in an incredibly truncated way, probably. But boys or girls, it's something that I will be using to teach them because I don't want them to think, oh, well, people talk about rape and sexual assault and harassment, but I don't know anybody. You do know somebody. You know me. And if you can look in my face and tell me that you did something to somebody or or something like that, then then who are you? First of all, because I'm not raising any kids like that, but that'll be something, you know, and that's what I hope, you know, being able to talk about it here with you today will do is that anybody who listens to it, if they know me, if they don't know me, 
if if they can just that I, I want to be the person they think of for anybody who's like, I don't know anybody. I want to be that person that they think of. Now, you know, one person, you know, I don't ever cry. <laughs> you made me cry. I just think that the story of how you were able to help someone is really powerful. And I just think that's like you took a really bad situation and changed it for someone else. And that's I just I feel really passionate, obviously, about helping young women who are in the military. And if you're listening and you've gone through something like this or if you need help, you can email me and I'll find someone who can help you because if I can't help you I want to make sure there's someone who can help you and I think that's one of the cool things about the podcast is that we can help you if you're looking to join the military or if you've gone through something like a rape or an assault or any type of situation we as military veterans who are women can help those who are still in and change it for the better so that things will go like they're supposed to and you you can't know what you don't know you didn't know that like if you had followed up or if you had had a champion, then things could have went differently. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm so appreciative that you took the time to share your story. And obviously it really affected me because I'm crying, but I'm so sorry that you went through what you went through. But I'm so proud of you for what you did for that girl and how you're able to change the story. Once we get to that future point, like that's, that's the future I'm, I'm working towards, right? If it happens, I just want anybody it happens to to just have this soft safety net that they can fall back on. And like when they talk about the numbers on college campuses and stuff a lot, but like, like I described, like my living conditions were very similar to that of, of college, college students. And I don't think they talk about this issue enough in the military. Whether it's reported, unreported, they don't talk about it enough. And it, what's different for us than with college women is that we're in an area like we talk a lot about inequality and then the perceptions of women versus men. We are in an environment that is inherently stacked against us. Our PT test standards are different, right? So male versus women. And, and so the female PT test is considered easy. And there's not as much expected of us physically. And, and sometimes, especially in the unit that I first duty station, I was at an infantry unit. That can be incredibly limiting and it, and it can be almost built into your mental beliefs. So it makes it even harder for you to report because, because you feel like, oh, well, if I was a man, this wouldn't have happened to me. Not that it doesn't happen to men. But that, that was some of my first thoughts. Like if I had been a dude, he wouldn't have followed me back to my room, right? Like, I mean, unless mm-hmm. you know, maybe he would have because, you know, if rape and assault is about power, not necessarily about sex. But when it happens to you, it feels like it's very much about sex. And so we're in an environment that it kind of puts us at a disadvantage, I think, in terms of how people perceive us. And it makes it harder to report. So when people talk about college campus statistics, like I, I want to hear more about military-based statistics. And I think there have been a lot of good changes in the programs lately, the last few years. But I would like to see this entire process completely removed from chains of command. And I mean, maybe even just maybe there just needs to be something completely set aside to it. Because obviously, with my first case going through CID, that didn't work out so hot. So I, it's hard to say what the exact answer is, but I do think that talking about it more and accepting that, that their shame is not my shame. And that's what I was carrying around when I, when I wasn't talking about it and it was a secret. I was carrying around their shame, not mine, but I mistook it for mine. And for anybody that it happens to, it is not your shame and it's not your 
that particular part of it is not your cross to bear. That's not your burden to bear. Yeah, you know, so once you're able to kind of shed that, then you can kind of move on and, and work on healing the parts of you that need to be healed. But that was the big thing. It's their shame, not mine. Thank you so much. I started interviewing Ruthie for the book that I'm working on because I'm going to do another Women of the Military book. And I was like, we need to do a podcast episode. And it went, well, I I still can't believe that you made me cry. <laughs> I just, it was, it was so powerful. So I'm so glad that I reached out and that you were able to share your story here. And then it'll be in the next Women of the Military book. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.